Welcome to Inclusive Sport, presented by me, Lucy Hodges. And over these podcasts, I'm going to have guests where I hope to inspire, educate and change people's mindset and create a world of inclusive sport. On this episode, I welcome Danny Crates, Paralympic gold medalist and a true inspiration to everyone. In 1994, Danny lost his right arm in a horrific car accident. But on this podcast, we look at how Danny returned to rugby and athletics and the inclusiveness of the team around him saw Danny return to full health and go on to achieve his Paralympic gold medal. Welcome to Danny for the first episode of Inclusive Sport. Danny, thank you so much for being on my first episode of Inclusive Sport. Um, cannot thank you enough. It's a, it's a huge pleasure. And um, as I'm sure you, you're going to cover, like we, we, you know, we, we do go back a long way. Our paths have crossed, even though we didn't know each other. So it's fantastic. I'm really honoured that you asked me. Yeah, so Danny's just touched on that. Um, it, mine, mine and Danny's dads, they, you, we worked, they worked together for what was P&O and Tommy Allen. So our childhoods were really, really sim- uh, similar. So mine, I was born disabled and inclusive sports all about sort of teaching people different pathways, how things happen and how we adapt and, and looking at it. And I'd love you just to explain. So rugby, you know, it talks about in your, we'll come onto your accident in a minute, but when did you start getting into sport at a young age and what sort of sports was you into so I had started sport um like pretty much like most people we start sport in school and um and that's one of the things I always talk about when I do talks and presentations is that if especially if I'm working within schools it's like you know it doesn't matter how how famous and successful somebody is the chances are they first was introduced to something and that could be music drama the arts you know technology um woodwork anything really Mm, generally will get introduced to it at school and then and that's what happened with me I was a little bit fidgety in class to say the least and (laughs) uh and a little bit talkative but the one thing I did hook into was sport so my two PE teachers uh in I went to Giffard's primary school in Corringham in Essex and my two PE teachers Mr Richards and Mr Davis uh because if you went to a school back in the 80s um, you had Welsh PE teachers, they come as part of the furniture and uh, they introduced me to the sports that I love. Um, I played all sports, but the two that I really engaged with was rugby and athletics. And they in- encouraged me and nurtured me and persuaded me to take it a little bit further and go and join my local club. So from playing at, just for the school, I then went and joined my local rugby club, Farrakh, and I yeah. ran for Farrakh Harriers. And that's where that's where my love for taking parts but I've never been a big fan of watching sport don't like watching other people have fun I'd rather do it myself so that's where my passion for it came from they're two quite different sports so one's quite I suppose solo and the other one's quite team what what was it about the two different sports that made you fall in love with them I mean I was a swimmer and then I became a sailor so I suppose it's similar so swimming and sailing so so what was it about both sports that that triggered you um, to, to take them up I mean Athletics was, I've always enjoyed running. I didn't really engage with it. I did it. I trained with it. I enjoyed the fun because athletics is an individual sport, but it is also part, you're part of a team. You're part of a training squad generally. So you are part of a team because you train with a group of people with a common goal, which is to 
you know, win championships and do the best you can. So that's probably the element I engage with more, going to training, having fun. I didn't really push myself, didn't really excel. I won count, you know, I won district sports and things like that, but I didn't didn't go considering what I ended up doing potentially. So I did have a potential there. I never used it. But the one I did really engage with was rugby. So I kind of did them both when I was younger, but I did start you know, my focus went to rugby earlier and I did eventually give up athletics. And, and, and when I left school and became sort of 17, 18 and, and uh, you know, 20s, I rugby was the one I was the one I did. And, and that was because of the, the sport itself. I love the sport. I love the physicality of it. I love the, the the element of control that goes with it as well. The respect yeah. level that goes with rugby. But I, I also more than anything, being an Essex boy, love the <laughs> rugby mentality and the ethos and the and the away games and the tours and you know going out together. There was nothing better than after a, a training session on Thursday or after a match on a Saturday, going out with your team. We used to go out, yeah. you know, an entire rugby team going out together on the town is a force to be reckoned with, and I just loved being part of that. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm quite a rugby fan, and. Um... I, I, I host for a, a company called AQL at Cows Week and I, I come back from a day's racing, sailing, got back and sat at the dinner table and there was a guy sat next to me. We had lots of guests in and uh, I was like chatting with him and uh, and Adam said, do you, do you know who you sat next to? And I was like, no, no, just having a little chat. And it, I've forgotten the guy's name and I really apologise because he was an amazing guy. It was, was ex-England rugby. And I said, oh, I love Johnny Wilkinson. Do you know Johnny Wilkinson? I said, I'm a massive fan. And he was like, oh, I live with him. He said, not everyone always says that. And I was like, I don't mean it offensively. And I must have gone on about Johnny Wilkinson for 30 minutes, this lovely guy. Um, but he did take me out for a drink. We had, I took him around cows and that. And I think he I think he accepted that I like Johnny Wilkinson more than yeah. him. But um, no, I, I rugby's think, really I, think, I think the entire England squad accepted that Johnny Wilkinson was <laughs> Yeah, I don't, you know, don't. back in that era of rugby, most of the rugby players had beaten up faces. Johnny didn't, so you know, he was a standout one. Well, it's interesting. I I liked him for his training ethos. I I liked watching how he trained, um, the repetitions because being visually impaired, I, I quite often practically practically sort of like have to repeat things to get get it into a routine for myself um I can't just watch something visually or read something I'm, I'm really and I love that ethos about him and, and I, I love that but just I, picking I, up go on I often talk about that in presentations as well it's about the because I, I have a piece where I talk about that for every and I use Johnny Wilkinson and um and for every Johnny Wilkinson for every Roger Federer for every Michael Phelps and then I'll use arts and music and drama so I use people from that as well I, I believe there's always 10 that could have been better. Yeah. It is the ethos that makes those. Some people will, you know, are lost to circumstance because life can be tough and cruel sometimes. Yeah. Most are lost because they can't be bothered to put that extra piece of hard work in or they, you know, when it gets tough, they step back. And it, and I, and Johnny, there was a re- and there's a reason that he could always get that ball between the upright, same as Owen Farrell can. And there's a reason that Roger Federer has been consistently in the top, you know, let's say top 10, he's been in the top like two or three in the world generally for most most of his career. And it's because, you know, whenever whenever other people finish training, they stay out and they do the extra bit. It's not about just training harder, but they train smarter and they put in the, you know, they they don't leave any stone unturned. 
and that's what makes them exceptional yeah. um, yes they have the talent but it's not just that it is that work ethic that goes with it um, that makes them stand out so he's a great he's a great example for that Johnny Wilkinson because people just assume that he was just very gifted and actually he had a gift but he worked you know really? that that, didn't, that that doesn't come easy what he did and, and there's a there's a lot of balls that got kicked to, to get there yeah no 100% so you, you touched on your sort of your age there and um you at the age of 21 you you suffered a an, an accident and uh, and that's how you became a, a Paralympic athlete. But I just wanted to transfer from sort of like the, the world you were in, your rugby, your athletics, and then just, just explain a little bit about that age of 20, 21 and that sort of initial, initial what happened and the, and the little transition just to touch on, touch on that area. Yeah. Cause I, I, I mean, it's, it's, I didn't, um, you know, after the accident, it didn't, it didn't just happen after that. I didn't just become a Paralympian. So I had to go through a journey of recovery and rebuilding. And so I was traveling in Australia. I'd been out there for a year. I'd done my, my gap year in Australia. I'd actually been, I'd actually, because, because I'm me managed to miss my flight home. I was up in Darwin. I, back in those days, um, you had a paper airplane ticket. You did. There was no phone. There was no internet. There was no. So it was a piece of paper in your bag that sat in the bottom of a backpack for the whole year you're away, and it had a, an expiry date on it. And I had a flight booked, and the flight was, and I literally was in Darwin. I was due to fly down to Sydney to catch my flight back home after a year of travelling, and I got my ticket. I was just checking out my backpack, and I realised that my expiry date my ticket because you get it was like a year ticket i think it's 30 months there to give you from the, the day you buy it to the, mm-hmm. the day you have to end it ends and expire and it expired like two days before i was flying home and i hadn't realized i booked my flight <laughs> but i just hadn't realized and so i phoned up air france and just said look there isn't a flight i can't get here but i'll, I'll get the next flight if you can put me on the next flight um and they just went no you're done and I, and I was just stuck, stuck in Australia without, without a ticket. And I had to work. I had to get, I had to go to the embassy, get an extended visa for a month, had a job, like I had to get a job so that I could then work. I didn't get paid. The job was that I would have a flight home. And that's what I was doing. And that's, and then I ended up having a car crash while I was out there. And at that time, it was literally the last job I was doing. I was about three or four days before I was due to fly home. Um, and, and I had the car crash. I was doing the last job I was doing. It was working for a, a youth hostel out there. I was traveling up the coast, doing a leaflet run and, you know, just build, building the uh, relationship between all the different the hostels mm. so that they send each other to each other, like clients to each other. And um, I was 60 kilometers from my destination, which was Airly Beach, which is where I spent five months of my life. So all my friends were there and I was really looking forward to getting there. To, that was where I was finishing that trip. And then I was going to head home from there. And I was 60 k's away and I had a car crash. And the result God. was I lost the arm actually in the accident. Um, so that, that was the, the start of it, really. And then the, the transition was, you know, in hospital first, like you would be, and you looked after so you're safe. And then my parents got the call, which you can't imagine what that was like, getting yeah. called in the morning, being told that your son's been involved in a serious accident. Yeah. Uh, and then they flew out within 36 hours, they'd find my bedside. Oh. And, and I suppose it's from that moment that the the recovery process started and, and and that was the journey that I then went on that led me down the path I went, which was But was it six very, months? Six months and you was back on the rugby field? 
Yeah, so it was. I had a period of not doing a lot because I was in Australia. We had to stay in Australia for a month before I could fly home because I wasn't strong enough to fly home because I'd lost so much blood and I didn't have a blood transfusion. Um, it, I was borderline for an emergency one, lost half the blood. So what they did was they managed to stabilise me and, and get it all sorted and then then they had, then they sort of was watching me and then they said, okay, you, you, you pretend you could do a blood transfusion it will come back itself or we hope you should rebuild it back. We'll keep an eye on it, but I, I wouldn't be able to fly home with that level of blood. So I had to wait a month to be able to do it. So I had to sort of rehab in Australia a bit with my parents and then, and then eventually sort of flew home and and that that's when you kind of your safety net goes. Cause then, you know, mum and dad went back to work, brother was at work and I was mm. just suddenly home on my own and I had nothing to do, no job. I've been away for a year. So it was almost, you know, being home is a little bit alien again to me because I, you know, I've not been there for a long time, and I had to refine my feet. So it took me a little while. Um, I'd done a few little odd jobs, but nothing really sort of settled for me. But it was rugby. I just wanted to get back for the camaraderie, for just try and get a bit of fitness back. Didn't actually plan on playing at first. Just wanted to get back out in the park, throw a ball around, do a bit of fitness training with the lads. Didn't know if I'd be able to do it. Didn't know. Yeah how far I could get so I started and, and then that's how I've done most things in life I've started it with an with an open mind to think you know what's the worst that will happen the worst happens I can't do it right yeah so and then after a period of time it was becoming apparent that actually potentially I might be able to play again not to the levels I played before I played at inter-county level in Essex but to a level that you know would enable me to play rugby with my friends and be part of that that yeah. environment again and then one year to the day almost I played that first game of rugby and, and that was probably I equate that to being the most important step I ever took on the road to recovery because that was the moment I realized that actually you know life goes on and having a disability doesn't stop me from doing the things I love might not be able to do it to the level I wanted to or could do before, but it didn't stop me from doing it. And it was that that was the moment I think where things started to open up again for me to to be able to go off and achieve stuff. And that's that's the stories I want to catch because I I love those stories. Yes, and an accident has happened, but it's that um having an open mind and I, I can't imagine sometimes the people I help like I was I was born with my visual impairment I don't know no difference you know I, I do know that, that I'm different you know I can't see the things other people see but you've gone from one day and I, and I always uh, I've got a friend Hannah Stuttle that's that's uh, born with an arm disfigurement so tying shoelaces most people get two hands don't they tie the shoe you eat your dinner two hands and obviously you pick up a rugby ball two hands don't you but I'm so you you've gone from playing rugby with your friends and then you're going back to playing rugby in the same team wasn't it yeah Uh, playing rugby what was it like and and this is what I want to show in in the podcast just those stories of those those can-do moments because the team's brought you back in you're back in your camaraderie it's helping your rehabilitation and what was it like at transmit from going from two-handed catching a ball to one hand in and just just having that acceptance in in the team and and what was their feelings towards you how what was the acceptance like well I think I mean it there was two things so, so firstly what like, I didn't 
the, 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 as rugby does. Right? But even my friends did as well. So all my friends from Corrigan, right? we had we also had a football team because we used to drink a lot. So we used to go to the pub <laughs> most nights. And we decided to create our own football team um, that played in a league so that we had a reason to go to a pub on a Sunday. Um, we didn't worry about the other days. We just went. But on a Sunday, we thought we'd have a reason to go, which is we played a match on a Sunday morning. So we had a football team as well. So my friends grouped together. They put on a charity football match um, and raised some money for me. And the rugby club did exactly the same. They had a big charity rugby match. But it was it was so much more. The friends and the rugby club were very similar in the way they approached me. It was about supporting me. So they were just, they were family. So they were there for me. Um, so even before I was back on the field, I was back in touch with my rugby playing friends and, and they were there to support me. And then when I did go back out and start training. Yes, I was nervous. Yes, I was anxious about whether I'd be able to do it. There's also the, the fear of damaging the arm. Um, and what, you know, what if I got injured or what if I got turned in a tackle? I mean, I wasn't tackling at that time or I, I went down and couldn't protect myself. Or, but at the time, it was just about fitness more than anything, throwing the ball around. Anyone who knows rugby um, would understand this. I was a winger. So I was a winger before the accident. Of course, I didn't have a choice afterwards. I had to be on the wing. But before the accident, I was already a winger. Wingers generally can't catch a rugby ball anyway. They, they <laughs> drop it most of the time. So there was no pressure on me to catch a rugby ball. But actually, I think I my, the general pass catch was even better with one hand. I think it's just because there was no pressure on me. So I didn't panic. And I've got big hands. So I can pick a rugby ball up. I can carry two pints in my hand. It, that helped being able to just pick a ball up straight away um, and, and it's sticking to my hand. But it was, and it just grew. So it's not like I expected to be able to do everything at first, but it just grew with their support, with the support of our coach, coach called Hicka Reed, who was a former All Black hooker. Um, you know, and, and that level of coaching that we had there just enabled me to get to a, a point where I could make a decision and go, do you know what? I, I can play. Mm. Um, I didn't know how well or what how it would go. At the time, I was 21 as well. So I had that exuberance and natural, you know, the testosterone that a 21-year-old boy yeah. has, man, call me what you will at 21. So I had that in me as well, which helps with rugby. Um, that that played into it as well. But it was, yeah, I didn't know. I never knew how it would work out. And, and thankfully, it worked out all right. And I played, you know, for years after still, still have a little run out every now and again, uh, just a lot slower. I think that's I just I just love those stories because that's what you know catching inclusive and that is inclusive going back into your old team and being accepted and I don't see any reason why why people aren't aren't included but you'd, you'd in terms have... of when you talk about inclusive as well actually there's there's a brilliant stuff so the physio looked after me um, who's been a big part of my life a guy called Kevin Midler he's been involved in big parts of my life that supporting me then mm. he put me with you know he put me with my coach and my eventual training partner donna fraser from my athletics career as well he hooked us up so he's, he's been instrumental in my life and so and on the day of my match he was there and you know the tv cameras were there the papers were there it was a big story on the, on, a, on a saturday afternoon and um he actually walked me when you talk about inclusivity and and not treating people differently. He walked me into the opposition's dressing room and said, and introduced me to the team. And he said, hi guys, this is Danny. You're playing against him today. You obviously know about it. There's a lot going on around. It's his first game back. You know, you can see he's lost his arm. But I'd just like to tell you that he's, um, he's fit, he's strong, he's fast. If you don't tackle him, he will score. So just 
just teach him <laughs> as you would anyone else. And I just remember looking at Kevin Gann. I don't know if I'm thanking you or not thanking you at this moment in time, but uh, thank you. <laughs> and that was it, right? And then, and then on the pitch, people do. They hit me as hard. They, 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 you know, quite astounded if they get hit by me sometimes. But they mm-hmm. do. And I've always been treated as uh, just as one of the players. And of course, it's rugby, right? So there, there will yeah. be humor in there somewhere as well. Uh, I didn't get, I didn't get away with that one. No, no. It's it's um it's one of the things that I I love my my friends and who I race with. Sometimes they forget, and uh, we'll get into a close close situation in the yacht, and they'll be like, "Oh, this, this. and it." But it's the most amazing feeling when people forget because you are we are just we are just us um in life, and we're just we're just all different, and everybody's different. But you left athletics, but you you then took it back up. So what, what was the decision to go back into to athletics and, and pursue that career? It was, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't something, I just woke up one day and said, you know, I'm going to try and be a Paralympian. It actually came about, it came about from playing rugby. It was um, televised, uh, someone who was involved in the Paralympic Association. Or he's actually, he looked after a team of amputee athletes and um, a guy by the name of Peter Arnott. And uh, he contacted me out of the blue and, and he just said, look, I've, I've seen you do the rugby stuff and I read the press and, I, you know, and you used to be an athlete. I get all that. And he said, I look after a team of athletes that some of them have been to the Paralympic Games. They've been to Atlanta, 96. Um, he said, we, you know, they all train in their respective clubs. But we have squad weekends once a month. We all come together. So I'd love you to come and meet the athletes. And, I, and my initial response was, look, I said, I did athletics when I was a kid. I said, you know. I said, generally at rugby, we we will play a match and then we will hang upside down from the bar and drink Guinness through our <laughs> eyes. I said, do you do that in in athletics after a, after you've raced? And he went, not really, no. And I was like, I'm not interested. Then I'm I'm more about the social side of sport now. And 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 actually, because we were talking about inclusivity, there was another element to it as well. And because I didn't know, so I had no idea. And I, you know, I've been and that's the difference. I've been an able-bodied person all my life, and we, you know, we didn't have that. Um, didn't have the concept of Paralympics like we do now. We didn't get what it was really about. So for me, I assumed it was going to be kind of, which is that there is, and I don't mean to belittle it. This is how, how my head was working at the time. It was kind of give it a go disability sport, you know, and if you're not doing anything next weekend, go mm. to the Paralympics. I never realized what level it was at. And um, so, I, so I didn't go. And then he, he and because, but bear in mind, because I just had an accident and yeah, I was getting all sorts of things thrown to me, disabled tennis clubs, you know, having, having to go through assessments to see what I'd be able to do for work. And back then it was archaic, you know, I got assessed and I, one of the jobs I was given was car park attendant if I wanted to do it. You're just like, mm. you know, going to these assessments where you're putting pegs in holes and, and it was just embarrassing. And, and I was just, anything to get away from disability, I would. So I wasn't interested. And then actually I was at a, a, a drinks around a rugby friend's house again and uh, around a New Year's around New Year's Eve time, it wasn't New Year's Eve, but around that time. And uh, my mobile rang and it was just this Peter Arnott. And he uh, he just used to call me every now and again, see how I was getting on and things like that. And, and, my, and my friend's wife picked the phone up and said, oh, Dan, it's your mobile. And I, and I saw Peter Arnott on it and I went, do not answer that phone. And she pressed the green button and went, it's for you, like that. And I was like, oh, I hate you. And I answered the phone, and because I'd had a few, I said to him, I'll come and I'll meet the athletes, I'll meet you, and then I'll tell you I don't like athletics, and then and then that will be done, right? And I met these athletes, and and I, and something just happened. It, it, it was like, it's not, 
it's not give it a go sport right which as i say you start mm. somewhere but what i get got suddenly was you know there is a level of sport and there is something that for there is aspiration for people to look up to that is the paralympics and the highest levels of sport and these people are, you know these guys have been to a paralympic games and like one of them come fourth in the atlanta games over 400 meters and he was you know months later he was still broken by that experience because he just missed out yeah minute, that goes second and, and i just i just suddenly thought wow and and then just like everything i've done in my life i just thought well i'll give it a go like what's the worst that'll happen and i never thought about going to paralympics it was about trying to make a gb team um the, the 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 vision was there there was sydney coming up in, in three years time two and a half years time i just thought you know well, i'll give it a go i used to love athletics anyway what's the worst that will happen I'll, I'll do it for a while and if it's the worst that happens i won't like it i won't engage with it i won't make the team but i'll go back to rugby and i'll be fitter faster stronger so i gave it a go and of course once i started it became apparent that potentially there there was something there and within mm. me and that's when I engaged with it. And then I, and, and it wasn't straight away that I really, you know, was committed, but I started training, did my first world championships, got through to the final, came eighth, um, eighth in the world, but that's last in the final. So, and that's what, that's when I made the decision after that point, which was, um, cause I hadn't really prepared for that championship at the time I was working out in Spain as a scuba diving instructor. So I wasn't really in the best physical shape. Um, I thought, you know what, if I actually commit to this, there's a chance. Yeah. And, that, and then it went from there. And then, I, then the rugby got put on hold for 13 years and I and I committed to athletics. What was it like? Was you was you able to come into, so you, so you had the disabled uh, club training once a month. Was you able to come back and go into an athletics club to enable you to train back here? You know, was there, was there a club that sort of accepted you and helped you train or did you just train by yourself and then go to the, the once a the month meets? Oh, no, 100%. So the, the, all these athletes trained at their respective clubs. It was, it was just, these, this was like a high-performance weekend. Mm. And this is where they come together because they're at clubs, but this is where they come together as international athletes. You know? yeah. so, so when they come together, it's at the next level up from their club level. Um, and, and that's what I suddenly understood. So I went back. So I went back to Thurrock Harriers, which is the club I started when I was 11 years old. Went back there, got together with one of the coaches there. And he started coaching me for the the, the four and the two hundred meters, um, and I, I was there for a, about I think probably eighteen months training at Tharrock. So just in a full like just like the rugby full in, full inclusive able bodied squad, um, and then and then the opportunity came where once again through the physio that I was introduced to um, one of the top female British athletes in the world over 400 metres, a girl called Donna Fraser, um, who eventually came fourth in the big Cathy Freeman race in Sydney. Mm. I wasn't just introduced to her. I was introduced to her, the coach, A.O. Falola. And, and this was via Kevin. And, and Kevin basically said to her, look, Dan's running. He's, he's got a dream of, you know, he's working toward trying to go to Paralympics. And, you know, would you be able to, to help him out? And AO sort of looked at me, spoke to me. He was looking after elite international athletes and, and got pretty quickly that I wasn't there yet. So what he did, what AO always did, he had time for everybody. You know, bless him, sadly, he's passed away now. But he, he sat down with me and he, and he, you know, gave me some stuff to work on and he gave me some targets to hit. And he said, hey, you know, get to these targets, show me that you've got it. And it's more about the mindset, right? Because he doesn't want to mess up his his athlete with some loudmouth Essex boy as a training partner. So he had to know that I was going to be committed. 
and I and he set me these targets and and I went off and I hit the targets and I went back to AO and I said AO like I've done what you asked and I'd love to you know be coached by you and and that's where it started and he he took me on he took me under his wing and um and it was a journey of learning and I learned with Donna and the other athletes that were in our training group and most important I learned from AO but of course what sport does brilliantly is we don't we're not insular we're not silo we 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 go out and we train with other athletes. We train with other elite athletes. So we used to go to America and train for eight weeks and train with the best athletes from around the world. And because we all learn from each other, right? So, mm-hmm. and the coaches always learn from each other. So I was, but this was purely able-bodied. So I, did, I didn't join a disability squad. I joined an elite Olympic squad. Yeah. And the reason I did that is not because I didn't want to be in a disabled squad I was, I was i was you know i was i was in disability sport i was in paralympic sport so when i came to championships i was with them on squad weekends i'd be with them it's just that for me i i believe that for me it's so important that my counterparts my able-bodied counterparts didn't see me just as a disability athlete yeah you have to remember the era era this was in yeah this was back late 90s early 2000 Sydney 2000 was the first time we really started to see the Paralympics being focal on TV yeah. and even Sydney was only a couple highlight shows right so it, it didn't really people didn't really resonate with it they they watched a little bit of it if they caught the highlight show six months after the games had happened so people didn't have the perception and for me I wanted my counterparts so that you know the likes of Christian Malcolm, Darren Campbell, people like that that were training, you know Mark Richardson, Derry Redmond, Roger Black, all the athletes around you and Thomas, mm. those athletes. I wanted them to see me as an athlete first, yeah. not a disabled athlete. It wasn't that I was hiding the fact that I was a disabled athlete, or I just wanted to be accepted as an athlete more than anything, and um, and, and so that's why I train, and also. You know, they, they that movement is a lot older than the Paralympic movement, and those athletes would have, as, as you've alluded to, you know, some some people acquire disabilities, so we sort of get dropped into situations yeah. like, like sport. Whereas in in able-bodied sport, you generally come up through the ranks, you've done the journey, you've done the apprenticeship. So by the time you get to senior level, some of these people have been international athletes for fifteen years, on you know, a junior level, but they've, yeah. they've been in the sport, so they've learned how to be an athlete and I had to learn how to be an athlete so why not surround yourself with the best athletes in the world to learn from and that's what I did Um, yeah 100% 100% there's some strong words there like you know um I'm always people I've got like got a few like title MBE and stuff like that which I'm so proud of but I am just Lucy at the end of the day and and when people talk about the visually impairment and stuff like that I'm always I'm, I'm still just me I'm still just me you know there's there's a lot about me that isn't the visual impairment it isn't you know the gold medals and stuff like that and and I think I think that's that's strong for everybody but just before we t- touch on some more of your fantastic successes and inspire people we spoke about the rugby and the fact that you can pick up two pints with one hand I'm still thinking about that because I think I've now got really small hands but I suppose I am a lady so I can have small hands um but go, go into running. Um, I, I do a bit of running. I'm not the world's best runner by any shape or means. But um, balance comes a lot into mind because my visual impairment and I'm, I'm quite I, I know that I'm very 
sort of arm and hand orientated to give me that um, sort of like balance and, yeah. and everything quite focused. What was it like trans? So I've never seen you have any adaptions like other people do. Um, some people add arms and, you know, not add an arm, but, um, you know, have their yeah, prosthetics. Running arm, yeah. Yeah. I've never seen you do that. It might just be it's not been audio described to me or anything like that. But what was sort of your transition from able-bodied running into into your running with with the right arm missing now how did that feel and did did you look at any adaptions or did you just go as you yeah I mean so in I mean in terms of the general uh, recovery process I I was fitted with prosthetic limbs never really engaged with them didn't really use them um, only really went through the process of training with it um, so I used to go to the limb fitness center they'd fit me with the arm I'd do a bit of training They'd send me home. They'd tell me to keep work using it, practicing with it. A month or so later, you'd go back again. You'd have another session with it and another fitting. And they'd say, oh, you've been doing really well. You've been really using, you know, you've been practicing. this." I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I'd go home and do exactly what I did the last month, stick it straight in the wardrobe and not touch it for a month. And the only reason I used to go back was because I thought the occupational therapy was hot. So that's the only reason I went back. Um, but I never really engaged with it. And it was the same with the running. And there's two reasons. One is um, a high level amputee, so there's not a lot there to fix an arm onto, so it would be very difficult to fix one on. Um, a lot of the athletes that use the prosthetic limbs to run are below elbow, and it just means they can fit it on, and it's just that is just a balance, a counterbalance, a weight, um, and, and a thing if they're doing starts. I did have a start arm that was designed, um, it wasn't actually designed for me, it, it was just a prototype that was made for me and the other 400 meter runner to try out by a prosthetist. And it was just, he had just, it made a random cast, uh, like a stump socket off just a random cast they had lying around in the, in the workshop somewhere that someone else had been, you know, that, that was somebody else's cast and they fitted a child's walking crutch to the bottom of it, <laughs> create a, like a, an arm that you can lean into to do your, because I used to the 400 back then. So you do four point start. And uh, and we just tried, and it was this prototype. It was just you know, he put a Union Jack on it, and it was and it was um, for us to try out. And we tried it out, and I thought that's quite handy. That that would do me a job. And I was bigger than the other guy, so I, I took it and said, "I'm having that." And I had that for my whole career. And it was just it, what used to happen is that I used to lean on it at the start, and the gun would go, and I'd take off, and it would fall down and stay on the track. And that's the only thing I ever did. Um, people I raced against did have prosthetic arms back when I raced. You had below elbow and above elbow, and we raced together in one category. Uh, I never complained because I could hold my own against them. Mm. But in theory, I was more disabled than them because your arms, when it comes to running, as you rightly said, it's about balance. Your arms are so important. Um, they are the, you know, they are your your stability. It's not balance as in falling over, which is what people see. It's balance as in your body, how it's working, its stability. Your arms are you know stop your your arms are stopping everything from twisting they're working in unison with your legs when you take one of them away then something else has got to do that piece of work and for me what I had to do that piece of work was my back so my back then was under massive strain all the time which is why I had suffered from hamstring injuries quite regularly and back injuries because the back was just taking so much of a pounding um that that's what it is right so yeah yeah uh, and that's that's where the balance issue comes in but of course add to that 
you don't really have the power that you get out of your arms as well when you're, you're powering out the blocks. You can't train like you normally would weights and things like that. You can't lift weights that you need to be able to lift, you know, the Olympic powerlifting type sessions we would have done. So everything had to be adapted for me. Um, but it was quite it was mad because my, you know, same thing back then, there wasn't the knowledge of Paralympic sports. So my coach had never seen, really seen Paralympic athletes before, but he would, he used to try everything, right? So he used to try to do the weights one-handed to see how it would feel for me before he set my weights programs for me. Mm. So, it's, you know, we just found a way to do stuff. And I love that because one of the things when um, I look back at my childhood and, and probably your childhood too, we didn't have the access to social media. We, we, we couldn't just blog and say, you know, my, my daughter's just been born, registered blind, my son's just lost his arm, what do I do, what, what's out there for me? There wasn't, there wasn't that. I mean, you, you spoke about like telephone calls and stuff like that. So I always feel quite empowered by the fact that it was trial and error when I was younger with my mum and dad, let me go and do stuff at the local swimming club. And, and I think their naivety made made me stronger and it some of the stuff you're speaking about now I think I think it's so powerful where someone's just willing to try something and and give it a go and then you accept giving a go and I think that's 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 the power and I think sometimes these days it's slightly missing I think we do sort of like there is a bit of model 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 model, I can't even get that word out but in in schools now we don't always have a winner um and I I think I had I lived on that that I had to strive just that little bit harder to succeed but 2014 all of this seemed to come together for you didn't it I think that was um uh, a big moment in your career the Paralympics so yeah winning so, gold yeah so at Sydney 2000 was my first and that was the bronze over the 400 meters um and 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 that's 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 and I and that was a, you know, that was a, a big experience for me, but it was a big negative experience, but a positive one as well, because I messed the race up. I, I didn't win the bronze, I lost the gold, and by less than a quarter of a second's worth of mistakes that I knew I'd make uh, in a race. And, and that's tough, and that's hard, you know, that's, that's when you're on the track, athletics is life and death, right? We live mm. by our last um, performances. So, it was tough for me to come back from that, but I had to, and it's part of sport and you have to learn. And, and I did and adapted and eventually also in that adapting process, we realized that, you know, as a, as a 400 meter run, I was just, I was a, I was a strength based 400 meter runner. So I would run hard for 400 meters, but I didn't have the speed that some of the other athletes have. The other athletes could go a lot quicker than me generally, which meant when they got through like the halfway barrier, they wasn't running flat out, so they had more energy, whereas I was running close to flat out the whole way around. So there was a point where we just couldn't get me physically faster, which was always going to make the four a difficult event for me. But as we, so what we were doing was we were making me stronger. But in that strength training, like endurance strength, I'm about not physical, like weightlifting strength, but in that training, it, I was really thriving in it. And my coach was just like, there's a potential i think you know the eight is where you might sit and, and i was like it's funny you say that because eh? i used to run eights when i was a kid i just chose the forks i thought it was quite tough and uh and so we started looking at the 800 meters and um started doing some not internationally but at the the, the grand prix around the uk and that and it just felt right and then, then i switched the the 800 eventually and then yeah athens 2004 2004 in general was the big year for me because i broke the world record yeah 
for the eight and then went on to Athens to win the gold. Um, so that was the pinnacle of my career. Um, and it was, it was, that was seven years in the making to be seven years to get to that point of winning that medal. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, it's an amazing journey that you go on and you have to be committed. You have to want to go that extra mile. You have to give things up to do it, but you've covered so much. I've absolutely loved talking to you and you've, we've touched on inclusive. We've gone from rugby um, playing it before you was injured athletics being part of it before you was before you was um, injured and then going into those two same careers after your accident and actually you know being included back into your same environment and actually being successful at them uh, really successful what would you say you know inclusive means to you now and what did it mean at the beginning of your career I think for me, inclusive means being treated as an equal, but also accepting that sometimes you may have to do things a little bit differently. So you are, you know, you're treated as an equal to anybody else. It's understood that you have a value as equal to anybody else. It's just that sometimes we may need to do stuff a little bit different. And I think a great example of that would be I trained, I went in, in before I even be, be in between rugby and athletics. There's a period where I was a scuba diving instructor and I went to Australia to be a scuba diving instructor or to train up, same as everything I've done. I didn't know I was going to be an instructor. I just thought, see how far I can get. And eventually got to a point where I made a decision to sit my exam. But if you're going to be looking after other people underwater, because inclusivity is about being treated equally, right? So mm. for me, so it's not about, me saying right i want to do my my instructor's exams so if you're an instructor you're responsible for people and if something goes wrong underwater you've got to be able to help them and, and underwater you don't get very long to get it right if something goes wrong so there is no when you're doing the, the training and the, and, the, and then eventually the tests for your exams and the practical assessments there is no right we're going to do rescue scenarios today guys so basically you, you know you have to be able to get the diver out of the water safely within this certain time but don't worry dan you've only got one arm so we're going to extend that for you it doesn't really matter it is you either do it or you don't do it if you don't do it you foul because it comes down to safety um and that is the rules right and for me that yeah. is in its own way I, we adapted all my equipment to enable me to do it safely or not all my equipment but some of my equipment to enable me to do it safely. I'd have harnesses and things like that that we, we, we designed that I could clip onto people when I was in the water so that if I had to let go of holding them to do something to them, I was still attached because you have, you know, you can't let go of someone in the water because if the current gets and they've gone. So I, I was still attached. They was attached to me via a harness. So we designed all this stuff, but the inclusivity for me was the fact that you know, you're equal to everybody else. You either pass or you foul. And that I found that really powerful because when I did pass, I knew I'd put in, but like you say, sometimes you have to put in the extra yards because mm-hmm. I have to do the extra hard work to find ways to do stuff slightly differently. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, that is what it's about. It's about giving it an equal playing field for everybody to achieve, to, to be able to achieve what they want to achieve and putting things in place to help them do it. But I do think there's also, there's an onus on us as well. Yeah. To accept that the world is not there for us 
personally yes that we can ask for help in certain areas but you know there's a lot of us out there that have different needs and it's not just about disability you know people have different needs for different reasons and the world is not out there to you know fix everything for everybody it can try and do the best it can but sometimes it won't be 100 percent, and we have to accept that and yeah. you know we have to try and work with it rather than saying you know you need to do it for me and I've always found that as well. And it's the, the, the especially within the world of disabilities, the people that are prepared to, um, you know, find different ways of doing things and and accept sometimes it's not always going to be easy and plain sailing are the ones that are going to come out of it successful. Yeah. Um, and also as well can be the ones that can influence the change that is needed to make it easier for other people, you know. Yeah. I mean, just that conversation there at the end is is magical about getting a job and the fact that you was able to do a job like scuba diving and, and it was adapted and it was accepted and, and just meeting those standards. I find that just truly, um, you know, inspirational, uh, really, really inspirational, because quite often um, just getting work as a disabled person, you, you hit barriers. But just as you said, like sport, like work, you, you've got to work, you've got to adapt and you've got to allow other people time to accept you into it. And I think the one of the things I want to do with these podcasts is, is sort of show to coaches and clubs um, just how you can open a door. And just I'd like to cover just the last little bit. What would you say to a coach um, that as, as, you know wants to open their doors to disabled athletes for, say, athletics? What would be like a top tip from you about doing that? Um, I, I mean, I actually addressed something else first as well, because you just you mentioned it and I'll get to the coach because I think that is a great way to end because it's, it's about how we work with people. But you said about getting jobs can be really difficult. Right? I had the, the daftest job I ever did in my entire career was I was a shark display diver. And I got that job because I never put and that's no disrespect to the guy because because I actually ended up doing a speaking job for him eventually as well. I did it about two years ago. He's got a successful recruitment coming now. But at the time, he was the manager of a Sea Life Centre and they wanted a shark display diver to uh, to swim in the tank with the sharks, to, to do displays, do maintenance, but mainly show the public the sharks aren't dangerous. And they put this advert in the national newspaper and I put in my diving CV. I was, you had to be a qualified scuba diving instructor and I was. So I put him, you know, and so I put in my CV and uh, but of course I didn't say I was disabled or I had one arm. I just put, you know, I was a diving instructor. I was a pad instructor. I had, I'd done so many hundred dives. I, you know, I dived in the Barry Reef. I dived in Egypt. I'd done all this other stuff. And I just put my uh, CV in. Unbeknown to me, somebody else actually got the job. And um, But what happened, the day all the directors came into the Sea Life Centre to see this new display, the diver they had had got himself arrested the night before and he had one phone call and his phone call was to the manager of the Sea Life Centre and he said, oh, I'm really sorry, I've been arrested. I'm not going to make it in today uh, to do the display. So the, the, the manager then just, in a panic, picked up my CV, phoned me up and just said, look, we need a diver today. Can you get in today? And I just said, yeah, no problem. I got in my car, drove, and it was up to uh, Yarmouth. And I drove up to Yarmouth to do this uh, this shark dive and uh, in the tank. And there are 20 sharks in there. The biggest one was nine foot long. And I drove up there, and he had no idea I had one arm. He'd, he'd employed a diver to come and swim with sharks and show the public that sharks aren't dangerous. And, and I, I never knew this part of the story. Right, All I knew was I got the job. And he only told this when I actually worked for him about 18 months, two years ago. And, uh, and apparently I walked in the office and his, his jaw nearly hit the floor 
because he's like, how can I put a one-armed guy in a shark tank? But then I can't kind of not put a one-armed guy in a shark tank because I can't discriminate against him. And I need a diver, which is more important. I need someone and he can do it. So he put me in the tank and it went, it went from there. I worked for him for the whole summer, summer that year. And uh, I think that's like crazy because potentially no disrespect to him, but if I'd put that I only have one arm, I probably would never have got that job mm. in the first place. And, uh, and then to answer, and also when we look back now, our one arm guy is probably not the best advert for sharks. It was, I've been holding a laugh in, yeah. not to laugh over you speaking, but I was just imagining that scenario at the end, the poster advertisement, you know, come and watch the shark display and, yeah. and you stand in there. To be perfectly honest, I think it'd be a brilliant display, especially for young young kids. Oh yeah, the, the kids used to, yeah, I used to tell the kids it was a big shark, you scare the life out of them. <laughs> but then you, then you asked the big question at the end, right? So uh, advice for coaches. And this is this, and, and it's this advice is for coaches in general, right? And it's not about whether you're coaching able-bodied, disabled, or mixed teams, right? Being a good coach is about understanding your athlete, and every athlete is different and has different needs. Even an able-bodied athlete has complex needs in any sport. I call athlete, you know, a sports person is an athlete to me. So. You know, and then you take a team, so you rugby team, football team, cricket team, netball team, hockey team, whatever it is, right? It's made up of individuals that are performing, but each one of them, they're not just one unit. They don't all do the same training. They all have individual needs. And a good coach is someone that sees that. So my coach, even take me out, my training group, we had training sessions but he knew that each individual athlete in our group, even though we're doing the same events, like some of us were 400 runners, some of us 800 runners, so the four runners were trained together, the eight runners are trained together. Sometimes we'd cross, sometimes we'd do a bit of each other's session and they'd overlap because that, that's where it worked. But each individual athlete in that session as well would sometimes have something slightly different in amongst the session or would do a different session that day because the coach knew that that athlete needed different training you don't just take coaching out of the book you have to un, you have to have the knowledge and then you apply it to the athlete individually so it would be no different and i'd say you treat it exactly like you treat any other athlete you coach or team you coach you understand the athlete and what the athlete needs and then you develop the program to suit their needs um, and you make it work like that and there's also you know, the element on the athlete, once again, is to understand that, you know, sometimes you might do things slightly differently um, to the others, but it's to enable you to be part of and work with that squad. And for me, that that is the advice it is, you know, just treat them as any other athlete, because if you're a good coach, then every athlete is an individual anyway. Yeah, no, definitely. I've absolutely loved chatting with you, Danny. I cannot thank you enough. We've touched on so much. I could spend hours actually pulling apart some of the conversations that we've had, um, but really appreciate your time and hope guys listening out there, you know, um, if you're a newly disabled um, person, because you might not even be an athlete yet, but but don't think that one accident or, you know, for those parents that have a, a you know, give birth to a disabled child like my parents did, don't think life's going to stop because there's so many opportunities to go out and grab. So Mathis, thanks to Danny tonight. And um, that's it from Inclusive Sport. And I look forward to the next episode. <laughs>